Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. O Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father and the Son to give life and salvation to the world, and who, together with the Father and the Son, we worship and glorify as the only true God, receive our thanks and praise for proclaiming Christ to us through the preaching of the gospel and the gifts of the holy sacraments. Faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior, hope in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, and love for God and our enemies are all your creations and gifts to us through the forgiveness of sins in Jesus. Preserve the holy Christian church among us through the faithful preaching of the gospel and the right administration of the sacraments of Christ. Bless the communion of saints that every baptized Christian, sharing in Christ's love through his forgiveness, might abide in Christ and bear witness to his love in all that we do and say. Give us firm hope in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, so that we might faithfully endure persecution for Jesus' sake and suffer all, even death itself, rather than fall away from him who gave his life for us. Hear us, O Holy Spirit, for you live and reign with the Father and the Son, one God, now and forever. Amen. You may be seated. This week of Pentecost in the Congregation at Prayer, the color is as close to red as, as we could muster. So it's uh, red with a little white in that comes out pink. The verse for the week are the words of Jesus describing the Spirit's work. When the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. So the Spirit's testimony to Jesus is the Spirit's work. A testimony means that it involves words, and the Word of God is the means by which the Spirit testifies to Christ. Psalm 68 is one of the Psalms for Pentecost week. Uh, some of Psalm 68 is found in the intro it, uh, that we prayed this divine service. So the creed is the third article and its explanation. And the prayer that I used was the extended catechism prayer on the person and work of the Holy Spirit addressed to the Holy Spirit. Finally, uh, I just want to encourage you to uh, make use of the biblical narrative especially um, and if you, if you can, take up the second reading also. If you take up both readings, you may want to do the second one first, uh, readings from the Old Testament. But we are in, the, in Luke's Gospel and daily prayer, just walking through their manageable uh, sections uh, suitable for meditation. So I would encourage you to do that. All right, uh, another topic in our St. Peter option today human tyranny versus Christian freedom. And I want to remind you of 1 Peter chapter 1, 3 through 9, redemption. In, in the Bible, and indeed even outside of the Bible, redemption means to be purchased away from slavery or bondage to freedom. So we talk about being set free from sin and the judgment that we deserve by our sin. So if, if, if you deserve condemnation, but you're redeemed from sin, then you're set free from that judgment, from that punishment, from the punishment of the law. Uh, death, uh, this is why the scriptures speak so uh, frequently in the New Testament about falling asleep, about um, they don't use the word death of Christians dying. Um, even, even Jesus speaking about Lazarus says, he sleeps, I go to wake him. And they thought he was talking about, John is careful, an actual, you know, Physical sleep, you know, if you're sick, get some rest, you know, get better. But, he, but then finally Jesus says plainly to him, Lazarus is dead. So they might not understand that it's death, but it's not the annihilation. He doesn't cease to exist. But more importantly, 
though he may die, yet shall he live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. That great passage of Jesus in John 11 at the raising of Lazarus. So you're set free from death, uh, eternal separation from God. And Satan's power, as we talk so extensively in the Didache Catechesis, Satan's power has everything to do with his use of God's word, particularly the law. You're a sinner. You deserve condemnation. See, so the devil, Satan, his name Satan, Satan means accuser, he accuses with the law as if there is no, as if there is no gospel. So to be set free from the power of the devil are his accusations. So the only thing that can do that is the righteousness of Christ. So the righteousness of Christ is that work of Jesus and the shedding of his blood upon the cross that redeems us from sin. It redeems us from death. It redeems us from the power of Satan, and we are set free. So notice how uh, redemption is a part of the doxology of praise in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9, that we uh, talked about so extensively at the beginning of our study last fall. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, in this salvation, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the uh, tested by fire, one of the things that Peter has in view here as the trials of the Christian is human tyranny that oppresses uh, the Christian and the church's capacity to worship without uh, fear of execution, persecution, and so forth. So that the genuineness of your faith, faith in Christ, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. You can notice how the doxology picks up the language of Jesus that we heard in the Pentecost gospel. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And, and faith Faith's object is always Jesus and his mandates, you know, which include everything associated with the gospel, like, I forgive you, be of good cheer. It's not the mandates or the commandments in terms of the Ten Commandments, law, but the mandates that flow from the gospel. You know, do this in remembrance of me. If you love Jesus, you'll receive his body and blood. Um, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you love Jesus, you will confess to receive his forgiveness and so forth. Okay. So whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the salvation of your faith, the sal uh, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And... The prophets proclaim this, as he indicates, from 10 through 12. And then uh, he talks about the redemption in verses uh, 13 through 25, even using a language that Luther will later use for the second article of the Creed, uh, verse 18, knowing that you were redeemed with, uh, not with corruptible things like silver or gold, 
from your aimless conduct received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So, verse 12, who through him believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory and so forth. Uh, then he talks about the church being on a pilgrimage and conduct ourselves uh, as those who are sojourners and pilgrims abstaining from the wicked lusts of the flesh. So I bring about a remembrance of some of these verses that we've been through before because we have to be very clear that Christian freedom has truly nothing to do with civil freedom under a government. Christian freedom has everything to do with the freedom of the conscience, the freedom that comes through the forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus, through faith in him, a gift of God's grace alone, a freedom that no one can take from us. We engage in the civil realm. We want the civil realm not to tyrannize and oppress. Not because that's the end of, uh, you know, the ultimate fulfillment of Christian freedom, but out of love for our neighbor. So what is good for the world, what is good for the neighbor and service to the neighbor, uh, so that the word of God is not bound but has free course and so forth. But I think many uh, Christians can confuse civil freedom from Christian freedom. And civil freedom is a wonderful blessing, but it is not the end and the object and goal of the Christian church's ministry and life. The goal of the Christian is to proclaim, and of the church, to proclaim Christ and the freedom that comes through him. Now, I'd like you to, to, to think about conscience for just a moment. Those of you who know Blessed Martin and his pilgrimage, in 1517, as a doctor of the church, he posted the 95 Theses in Latin, um, revolving around the sale of indulgences and per in particular, challenging uh, the, the theologians of the church to debate this question. Okay. Uh, the, the 95 Theses, you know, in their posting, and I use the word deliberately posting because that's what it was. It was in Latin. The common folk couldn't even read it. Okay. Um, was, it, it's, it's not among his greatest writings, actually. I mean, the small catechism that came in 1529 and other writings were greater. But he was, uh, he was motivated by the gospel and the abuses of Christian freedom, that people's consciences were uh, flayed and oppressed by obligations not laid out in scripture, but obligations that the church uh, set upon them. And a confusion of law and gospel and a confusion of what is the source of salvation? Is it in Christ and in his work or is it in pilgrimages, the purchasing of indulgences for freedom and salvation from sin? Remember what happened to him. That was 1517. Immediately a firestorm erupted. Um, he would, in a short period of time, be excommunicated by Pope Leo X. In 1521, at the Diet of Worms, before the emperor, Charles V, he was called to recant his writings. Are these your writings? I had them all on a table. Yes, these are, these are my writings. And they wanted one word, revoco. I revoke them. I, I renounce them. And at that time, he says, well, these writings cover a broad spectrum of topics and touch upon uh, accepted Christian teaching that many others in the church have written about and extolled. Um, but they wanted no discussion. They wanted no debate on the basis of God's word. You know, show me 
from God's word. So he asked for more time that he might carefully consider what it was that they were asking him to do. And the next day he appears before them again, you know, are these your writings? Yes. Revoco, recant. And he says something that um, is very significant. He says, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Now, that word captive, that sounds like tyranny, doesn't it? When Jesus ascended into heaven, quoting from the Psalms, it says, he led captivity captive. Uh, the captivity that oppresses and destroys is that captivity to sin, death, and hell, the power of Satan. But the new captivity is to be yoked and bound to Christ whose redemption sets us free, not free in the sense that I can be and do whatever I want. Certainly, uh, Peter warns against following the appetites of fleshly lusts, but a freedom of conscience, a freedom that my sins are forgiven, and I stand right with God, a freedom that Luther would later speak of in his paraphrase of Psalm 46, a mighty fortress. Take they our life, our goods, our fame, our child, our wife. They yet have nothing won. The kingdom ours remaineth. So that's the freedom of the conscience for the Christian. So anyway, before the emperor, he said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. It is neither safe nor wise to sin against conscience. Unless I can be shown by plain reason according to the word of God, here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. And he left Worms. He was there under a pledge of safe conduct that the elector, John Frederick, had, had um, Frederick the Wise, had established for him with the emperor, Charles V. But he left Worms under a death sentence. Anyone could have killed him with impunity. Okay? So um, it's like being in Nigeria, you know. But so he'd been excommunicated prior to this, and now he, from, this, from the church, and now he is under a um, death sentence from the emperor. But he left Worms, he was kidnapped by his elector and taken to the Wartburg Castle where he translated the Bible into German and was there for nearly a year. But Luther's, the example there, that's Christian freedom in action. Um, he was kept safe by his elector, but he was under both ecclesiastical condemnation and a death sentence in the civil realm. Okay? You can think of countless Christians who have been jailed, imprisoned, tortured. Um, and I, the, the 15, 15, 20, <laughs> 20, 20, I preached, I haven't, didn't preach a sermon in 15, 20. In 2020, I did preach a sermon in Eastertide about the difference between being um, refusing to receive the word and the sacraments when, it, when they are available to you, on the one hand, versus being in a situation where, like through an act of tyranny, they're unavailable to you. There's a huge difference. To refuse the word of God and the sacraments when they're available is to despise Christ, despise preaching in God's word. But to be incarcerated and imprisoned and being kept from receiving through no fault of your own other than confessing Christ, that is, carries with it the promise that the Holy Spirit will preserve and keep you by the word that you have received. This is why the church has emphasized learning by heart Bible passages, promises of uh, the gospel or the catechism. Not because it's, you know, some sort of catechetical tyranny, 
but because the living and active word of God that is implanted in us is what sustains faith in the face of tyranny. So we have stories about faithful Christians who have learned by heart promises of God's word, learned by heart the catechism, learned by heart hymns, so when their catechisms and hymnals and Bibles were burned, they were embedded in their mind and in their heart. And though subjected to intense tyranny, were nevertheless free, free in Christ. Okay? So that's the kind of Christian freedom I want to talk about. Uh, human tyranny, though, let's take up the issue according to the outline that I have before you. And when in the outline it talks about tyrannical regimes, I was just trying to, to, to pull out some examples. I mean, there's tyrannical regimes throughout all of human history. Um, but the ones that are most familiar, perhaps, to 21st century Christians are those tyrannical regimes of the 20th century. But our freedom as Christians is found in Christ. The Apostle Peter not only emphasizes our pilgrimage through a world of tyrannical oppression, but he emphasizes that our freedom is found in faith. Our citizenship is in heaven. The end of our faith is the salvation of our souls, as that doxology spoke. Christ's forgiveness that we are righteous for Jesus' sake is our true and eternal freedom. So, uh, the Apostle Paul, for example, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. By faith in Christ's redemption, our conscience lives in absolute freedom from sin, oppression, tyranny, bondage, and judgment. A mighty fortress, and take their life, goods, fame, child, and wife. They yet have nothing won. The kingdom ours remaineth. I looked up, what does the world say about it? 1937, Webster's Universal Unabridged Dictionary. First definition, tyranny, arbitrary or despotic exercise of power, the exercise of power over subjects and others, with a rigor not authorized by law or justice, or not requisite for the purposes of government. Two, cruel government or discipline as the tyranny of a master. Three, severity, rigor, inclemency, unseemly, harshness. And the definition given for a tyrant in Webster's dictionary, any tyrannical power or influence any force impelling, restraining, or overruling against one's wishes. Tyranny sets aside the proper use of law to curb absolute power and control in civil affairs. Um, a, a little digression, but very much related to this topic. A governance within the church. While churches have such things as constitutions and bylaws and so forth, um, our teacher, uh, Father Wolkema and I, our teacher, Professor Kurt Marquardt, emphasized when it came to congregational polity uh, that majority rule, where the majority, you know, 50% plus one, tyrannizes the consciences or viewpoints of the minority is to be steadfastly avoided. And I remember Professor Marquardt did not have the, um, the grave concern that some do over uh, the topic of women's suffrage. Now, those of you who are familiar with the Wisconsin Synod at present uh, and the ELS, women's suffrage means that women have the right in the congregation to to vote in a congregational voters meeting or assembly and so forth. And the reason why Professor Marquardt didn't have a problem with that is for him, love should rule in the temporal affairs of the church. It is why, for example, 
you look at major decisions made by our congregation over the last 30 years or something. Um, discussion, open conversation has given rise to consensus, which is how Professor Marquardt argued things should be done. Our decision to start the academy was unanimous without a dissenting vote by a closed ballot. Um, there was only one negative vote for the building of the academy structure. And the person who voted no said, I'm really in favor of it, but maybe it shouldn't always be unanimous. Uh, the parking lot decision to go ahead with the finance, that was 99 to 1. Uh, that is good. Now, such, such a overwhelming consensus is not often attainable. But he argued that in the church, if a decision can't be made where even if those who are not necessarily in favor of it, um, uh, if, they, if they can still agree to that, great. But if there's contention, he argues for tabling it, setting it aside until revisiting the issue, discussing further, can bring about the consensus of love within the congregation. And that's why he didn't have a problem with women's suffrage. Because he would say, the men should not tyrannize the women. He would also say that Grandma Schmidt has every right to expect the pastor being called to know the catechism. And if the pastor being called doesn't know the catechism, then Grandma Schmidt has every right to speak up and say, we, we need a pastor who uh, knows the catechism and supports it. Okay? Did I characterize that fairly well? Okay. And uh, that was very profound, uh, how, how love is to govern the temporal affairs. Not, this is my decision. You know, that was never, ever the way things should run in the church. Okay? Uh, so uh, that's a way in which you can look about how does the church view governance. You, know? you, you find this also, while church constitutions might say something like, our meetings are governed by Robert's rules of order. Uh, strictly speaking, I don't know a congregation that has ever assiduously followed Robert's rules because, according to Robert's rules of order, you can't discuss anything until, until there is a main motion on the floor. Moved and seconded, then you open it up for discussion. Okay? Um, but what happens at board levels in congregations or at a council level or a congregational level there's often discussion about a topic, and then finally, out of the discussion, a motion is made. That's not according to Robert's rules. But it is according to churchly love. You talk about this issue and, you know, what should we do and so forth, and uh, then finally, a motion comes forward. And it, no wonder, then what happens is, more often than not, certainly around here, it's moved, it's seconded, any further discussion, then there was oftentimes no further discussion, maybe a point of question, and then it passes unanimously, okay? That's not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. All right, tyrannical regimes, totalitarianism. Oh, uh, there's one other point under tyranny here. Oh, John? Uh, do, do we have uh, Pastor Gelbach? Uh, you may not be... For the recording is what... Right. Uh, why did you use Webster's 1937 edition? It's the oldest one that I had physical access to. Modern ones have changed. That. And I, yeah. Yeah, that's, and, and then I wanted a, an older understanding of tyranny. Okay. I probably could, could have, you know, contrasted it with more modern... Definitions. It's it's fairly close. Like, it's fairly close. Yeah, yeah. Some modern uh, definitions might be, you know, anything that. Um, no, I'm not going to go. There. <laughs> okay. 
So tyrannical regimes, totalitarianism. A uh, couple of examples, Nazi fascism and then uh, communism. Nazi fascism, its beginnings in the early part of the 20th century. Fascism comes from the Latin word, fasces, which was a tight bundle of wooden rods, which included a protruding axe blade. Did you know that? In ancient Rome, the officers attending the magistrates would hold this fasces as a symbol of the penal power of their magistrate. The Ital Italian fascist, Benito Mussolini, adopted this symbol to recall the greatness of the Roman Empire, the absolute power of the emperor, and to reinforce his authority as dictator of Italy. A common characteristic of fascism is that all citizens were to be totally unified around the tyrannical ideology, whatever it happened to be, like this tightly bound fascist, the bundle of sticks, but inside of it is the axe. And to relinquish all personal autonomy. So that's very uh, significant and important uh, aspect of fascism. And it's a wonderful thing when it comes to the gospel. On the one hand, we are all one in Christ. And the gospel proclaims a forgiveness and a love that is free of any, uh, you know, individual acts of tyranny. But on the other hand, the gospel embraces each of us as we are with Christ's forgiveness. So it is not the obliteration of personality uh, any more than there is obliteration of personality among the persons of the Trinity. But in fascism, all were to serve the state and submit to the power of the dictator for the good of the nation. You remember in the Nazi regime how uh, relatives turned each other in, uh, neighbors turned each other in to save their own hide. So Adolf Hitler was the Fuhrer, should have a umlaut there, the supreme leader an oppressive God, his command was law. So many of you are familiar with that. There are elements of fascism, you know, where there is one ideology that must be followed under supreme penalty from the state. Uh, elements of fascism extant in our current American contemporary culture and the way in which um, the various branches of the federal government are administering law. Communism, and, and we, should, we should certainly um, use our civic responsibilities and authority to speak out against that uh, in a godly way as Christians are called to do, not with insurrection and rebellion, but in a godly way. We still have the right of franchise as well as the right to publicly and peaceably assemble to have the redress for wrongs. Uh, communism in varying forms throughout the 20th century, notable individuals are listed there for you. Communism comes from the Latin word communis, which means shared or common, but it should not be confused with a word like communion, which is rooted in the giving and receiving of love without the loss of the individual person. So in Acts chapter 2, now we had Acts 2, 1 through 21 as the second reading today. At the end of Peter's sermon, it says they were cut to the heart. He says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then... They, this happens, they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and then it goes on to say, they held all things in common. And no one considered the things they had their own. And communists uh, used that, people like Marx and so forth, Karl Marx, as you see, Christianity promotes communism. 
Well, actually, there was a huge difference. Governments taking personal property away from people, confiscating it, and then redistributing wealth is not at all what the New Testament had. Uh, but rather, the Bible, both Old and New Testament, you know, you talk about the Old Testament, the Jubilee years, and, and how uh, you were to allow the field to be gleaned by the poor uh, and not pick up every last scrap of grain, but it was a way in which you, uh, you helped provide for the poor. Uh, in the New Testament, this, this theme continues so that the property that God has blessed us with, the Christian viewpoint or understanding is that we are to see these things that God has blessed us with as gifts through which we might serve our neighbor in love. There's a huge difference. So in communism, the human person is subjugated to the common good. Ideas of this sort stretch back to the utopian ideals set forth by Plato's Republic. Communism is a political and economic doctrine that strips the individual of private property and replaces a profit-based economy with public ownership and communal control of the means of production and the resources of society. Communism strove for a utopian society in which there would no longer be the economically oppressed by the oppressor, but one in which there would, uh, but one in which everyone was the same. All worked together for the common good, and individual and personhood was obliterated. So today, um, the 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 tenets of economic communism, not being able to to take hold the way some would wish. CRT, critical race theory, and wokeism uh, does the same thing in what could be termed social Marxism. And um, so we talked about that when we were talking about CRT, critical race theory, and wokeism. You've got, wokeism. You've got the oppressed and the oppressors. So the women in the room are oppressed by the men in the room, by definition. Um, blacks are oppressed by whites, okay? Um, and it goes on and on. Uh, LGBTQ plus people are oppressed by bigoted heterosexual people. And you can be in multiple classes of an oppressed state. And therefore, the rights of the, not, the oppressor must be uh, destroyed in favor of the oppressed. Okay? So I'm not going to revisit that, but there's elements of that. You notice how the totalitarian despotic activity described in the definitions you know, comes into play here. Pastor Gelbach? Uh, um, in addition about the, the scriptures teaches private property with you shall not steal and the allotment of the land among the people of Israel, it was a personal property that just couldn't be taken. So, I mean, uh, just to add that to a point right. when you hear that. So um, the Egyptian dynasty that enslaved Israel um, this is something that is um, significant when you look at uh, the Old Testament record of the Old Testament church. There was a, because we are all part of the same sinful humanity, okay, there is a tendency for each one of us, the old Adam in all of us, to actually return to and either prefer totalitarian control, one, or B, to engage in it ourselves. So the, the old Adam wants to be a tyrant, that's the second part, or be ruled over by a tyrant. You say, how can that be? Well, remember what the children of Israel said. Did you bring us to die out here in the wilderness? It would be better to go to Egypt. I mean, they were brutally treated in Egypt. But there was a security in that. I, I've noted this in, in socialist countries. Um, in Europe, for example, 
there is a comfort and a security that some of these, that is widespread uh, among the population by the kind of oppressive high taxes and confiscation of uh, money and goods in order to serve others. You, you see this in Scandinavia, Sweden, and so forth. So the Egyptian dynasty, the children of Israel's desire to return to Egypt uh, rather than live in the freedom of the Lord's redemption is illustrative of the tendency since the fall to gravitate toward a willingness to tyrannize or to be tyrannized. True freedom, now this returns to our, uh, where we began. True freedom is not a matter of revolution and insurrection, which is sometimes advocated by certain churches and certain Christians. And when you see an injustice being done, a tyrannical injustice, you want to lash out in kind. So this is an attempt to secure freedom by the coerce, uh, uh, coercive force of law and control, which results in simply a new form of tyranny, but rather a freedom of conscience. That's what Luther demonstrated at the Diet of Worms, that lives by faith in Christ and his righteousness. So when we engage, there is no setting aside of the call of the gospel to live in compassion and mercy. So Christians don't use four-letter invective words against the civil authority, for example. Okay? A lot of the kind of, kinds of conversations that I've mentioned before that we might delight in on a conservative talk radio are actually not particularly Christian in orientation. That doesn't mean a total passivity. I mean, to, to run for office as Christians, to, to serve in government as Christians, to recognize, as we talked about in 2020, our 4th of July celebration outside, um, the authorities that exist have been established by God in a democratic republic, constitutional republic, such as the United States is, the citizenry is part of the authorities that have been established by God. But we exercise our citizenship framed by the gospel of Christ in God's word. And we do so not for our personal benefit, but for the welfare of the neighbor. So further word on the function of the law in society or home. Fourth commandment authority, you know, honor your father and your mother, is not to control and subjugate, but to serve. So God gave me children not to get beer out of the refrigerator for me, even though they might actually do that. Or I gotta have enough children so I can, uh, you know, make them work. Right, Kevin? Is that what your why your dad had you so you'd provide him with workers? Yeah. Now, children work, don't they? And they're they're taught the service of the neighbor by the way in which uh, a father and mother uh, catechize them in their work ethic and so forth. Governments do not possess fourth commandment authority to oppress, but to serve and uh, to protect and serve. Parents and teachers do not possess fourth commandment authority to tyrannize their children, but to guide and nurture them. This is so because God's authority, which the law describes, is rooted in his nature of self-giving love, which protects, cares for, gives life, nurtures, etc. So that's why to observe that there are two tables of the law is significant. Because the first table, you shall have no other gods and so forth. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day. Our relationship to God where we are receivers from him, that's what is being described in the first table, enables us under the second table of the law to love the neighbor as one's self. So in the Christian worldview, those who possess fourth commandment authority do not do so to be served but to serve. Now, that ought to sound familiar, how it's rooted to Christ, who he said, I came not to be served, but to serve, even though he was Lord of lords and King of kings. So this is a radical point of view that is rooted in the gospel, and it's rooted in Christology, and the fulfillment of the law's description of love in the person and work of Christ. So these uh, Christian freedom points here, one through six, Government has a proper role under God. We sometimes refer to that as Luther did, the left-hand kingdom, secular authority. 
to protect the dignity of the human person and the fundamental human rights which enable us to live with each other in marriage, family, and community. Natural law is to be supported by government as servant protecting God's gifts of life, there's fifth commandment, marriage, sixth commandment, property, seventh commandment, truth, eighth commandment, along with due process or justice. In the United States, the citizenry is part of the left-hand government in the responsibilities we have been given under the Constitution. Freedom of speech, right to assemble, the right to redress, um, and the electoral process. Two, Christians and the church, the right-hand kingdom, or spiritual kingdom, as Luther would uh, describe it, does not engage in insurrection and rebellion against tyranny. Um, so, in, in the Middle Ages, you know, various uh, acts of war need to be carefully distinguished. Uh, it, it may be a Christian ruler, but he's doing so as the civil ruler. When it gets mingled together, <clears throat> then you have crusades where, you know, Peace Lutheran runs down the street and storms uh, the uh, Anglican a church on the corner or something like that. So distinguishing the kingdoms, why are we doing this? And the best way to understand it probably is to look at what a parent does, father and mother. Father and mother do have the right to punish uh, with a spanking, believe it or not. Um, they also have the authority to forgive. Okay. Um, I have the authority to use the law, but for the sake of the gospel, the call to repentance and faith. It's not given me to use the law to spank people as a pastor, so to speak. Okay. So understanding how parents function in both realms can be helpful also for us as citizens. Number three, Christians and the church remain true to our confession of faith in Christ under oppression. We yield in every way but never in a way that denies our faith in Christ. We must obey God rather than men, the Apostle Peter said when he was told not to preach. Number four, suffering persecution under tyranny and in love for our enemies happens to be one of the central ways in which we bear witness to Christ. As so many of these um, gospel readings during Eastertide have indicated, including last Sunday's, the justification of the sinner before God is our ultimate freedom. And I don't, I'll give you some quotations uh, next week. We're going to move on to the next topic next week, but from the freedom of a Christian, that one of Luther's great masterpieces, uh, the Christian is the free Lord of all, subject to none. He is the dutiful servant of all, subject to all. He highlights the difference between faith in Christ and love. Okay. We are past our time, so we'll give you some opportunity next week to ask some questions as we go forward. Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.